All right, if you would, turn your Bibles back to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. We've been looking at uh, the marks of a church that has been planted by God. The marks of a church that has been planted by God. And since we're in a fellowship group here, you know we have the freedom to talk a little bit. Uh, I thought it'd be interesting to ask a question as we begin our time. Last time we talked a lot about how many people in church history have suffered for the sake of the church. And uh, I just wanted to hear, um, even from the testimonies from, what's your name here, brother, my comrade from Portland? Tyler. Tyler. And Matt, who's here this morning, and then Brad, right? Hearing all three of you talk about how difficult it was to find a church. I just wanted to ask, of the people in this room, a show of hands, how many of you, um, did you have a healthy church that you went to before finding Grace Emanuel? Okay, put your hands up high. Okay. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. So maybe ten. Okay? Ten people in this room that had a healthy local church before coming here where we have a healthy local church by God's grace. There's probably how many people in this room? I don't know. 100? 90? 80? Mike, how many people are in this room? Uh, 70 to 80 people in this room. Now you think about that. That's a small, small minority of people that have been inside an Acts 2 church. A real church. And I, I know that over the years, my wife and I, when we've lived in different areas, when we were playing baseball and different things, it seems like when we would drive to a healthy church, we would drive past like 50 churches on the way on each street corner, right? And you think about the amount of unhealthy or compromised or even totally apostate churches there are in America today and across the world. It's, it's striking and sad. And I think of this quote as we go back into Acts 2 today. I've told it to you before, but a dear friend of mine typically says this. He says, when I look at my biography, I've told you guys this before. He says, when I look at my biography, GIBC is a very abnormal and extraordinary church. So when he takes a look at the, his history of attending churches, and then he's come to GIBC, he says, this is very abnormal, very extraordinary. But then he says, but when I look at the New Testament... GIBC is a very normal church, a very ordinary church. And, and really, that's what I've loved about us studying Acts 2. Because this passage has not been confirming and comforting to see that we have the most uncreative, non-innovative, they would fail in marketing school if they were in marketing school ministry, pastoral staff. We, we have done all we could to not deviate from the church's birthday in Acts 2. That's comforting. That's encouraging. That's a, it's been a great thrill to my heart to think about that. And so what I want to do is I want to read Acts 2, 37-47, and then we're going to jump back into our outline, which has been this. We've been looking at ten marks of a church that has been planted by God. And that's really the most important thing, right? You could say you like your church. I could say I like my church. We could say we go to a church. It's a wonderful place. Look at all the people that show up. If it does not represent what a church looks like when the Spirit of God moves on people's hearts and He plants a church, it doesn't matter what we say. All that matters is what God thinks of our worship. And Acts 2 is the church's birthday, where we see Christ birth the first church through His Spirit and body life's been exploding. So let's read it. Acts 2, 37 down to 47. 
Now when they and I'll just make some comments at the beginning to get you the context. Now when they heard this, heard what? Peter's penetrating preaching that they crucified their Messiah, that because of their sin they were God's enemy, and in His second coming when He comes back or when they die, they're going to face Him if they don't repent. When they heard that, they were pierced to the heart. And remember I told you, that was soul-penetrating conviction, what only the Spirit can do. And here was their response. These Jews that had gathered for Pentecost, that had come to worship the God they thought they were worshiping, but they were worshiping a God of their own making in their Judaism. These men and women said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? How can I be right with God? Peter's response, verse 38, you got to love it. Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For this promise is for you and your children and all who are far off, as many as the Lord God will call to Himself. And then we start to get some background here of what was going on. And with many other words, Peter kept preaching here. He solemnly testified and kept exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Translation, leave the culture, join the church. Verse 41, So then, those who had received His word were baptized. And that day they were added about 3,000 souls. And remember, that's only the men. Remember, we told you this was way more than 3,000 souls because we've just got the men that were added to the Jerusalem church here. And we talked about that a few sermons ago. And then what is fascinating is the immediate response of this church once they had soul-penetrating conviction, they repented of their sin, they didn't go to Starbucks, like I said, and hang out with their buddies for a few weeks and decide whether I want to get involved in a church or not or shop around for the church that makes me most comfortable. They devoted themselves to body life immediately. Notice verse 42. After this happened, immediately, the next scene Luke gives us, they were continually devoting themselves to four activities really right there. Notice the apostles' teaching, which we said drives everything. If you don't have the apostles' doctrine, a church falls apart. Everything that we're doing is all about doctrine. The doctrine of the church, the doctrine of fellowship, the doctrine of prayer. Doctrine drives it all. And then notice they were devoted to fellowship to the breaking of bread, which was communion, to remembering Christ, and to prayer. Verse 43, Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place to the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions. And they were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking the meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. So what you have is you have the immediate response of soul-penetrating conviction as they devoted themselves to the church. Then Luke gives some background and here's what it looks like when body life unfolded. If you remember, our outline's been this so far. We've seen, one, they had a regenerate membership role. They weren't concerned about bodies, they were concerned about souls. And they were making sure that the church was full of believers. That was our first mark. Second mark of a church that has been planted by God. They were devoted to sound doctrine. That was taught by qualified men. Third mark, they were devoted to vibrant fellowship. Which remember, we talked about, it fulfills the one another's. They had a culture of discipleship and they pursued unity. Fourth mark of a church planted by God. They were devoted to remembering Christ. We talked about that. They took communion. They exalted Christ. They confessed sin. They repented of it. They reconciled relationships with one another. They were healthy. 
Mark 5, they were devoted to fervent prayer. And now, we're going to look at Mark 6 and finish out the rest of our Marks this morning. Mark 6 of a church that has been planted by God, according to Luke, is they baptized believers publicly. They baptized believers publicly. And I want you to remember something. Each word that you read on the pages of Acts 2 was intended by Luke to encourage the church for generations on how to stand and not deviate. So when we look at this, while it's, while it's descriptive in its narrative, it's to be instructive in the sense that the church should go back and watch her birthday and what it looks like when God starts to move among His people. Because for a church, as I've told you each week, for a church to get away from the church's birthday in its coming weeks is to put their fingerprints on God's design and tamper with what God made and it ceases to be a church designed by God. So let's talk about it. They, were, they baptized believers publicly. We've already covered this, but I'm going to be brief, but I think there's some important things to draw out here. Notice Acts 2.38, where we begin. Baptism's a key feature in the early church. Notice, repent. What's the first thing you do after you repent? Be baptized. And then notice down in 41. Those who had received His Word were baptized. Did you know that in the book of Acts alone, there's 17 occasions where people were saved and then baptized? Baptism is a key feature of a healthy church. If we're thinking about a church that's been marked out, that we know the Spirit of God has planted, they take baptism seriously. And baptism here is not a result of an emotion, is it? They didn't get stirred up in their emotions by some, some, some feeling or some pastor trying to really get them, get them going, did they? Baptism was a response to soul-penetrating conviction. Just look at it again. Look back at verse 37. Now when they heard this, when they heard the Word of God preached to them by the power of the Spirit through Peter, notice, they were penetrated or pierced or stabbed, literally, in the heart. Baptism in the early church was a response to conviction. They were convicted over their sin and they wanted to publicly make it known that they had left the culture and they were joining the church. And you remember I told you, these first baptisms would have been profound. You remember what I said? You had all these Jews, two million from Pentecost, and they would have come in and cleansed themselves ceremonially when they went to the pools when they come into Jerusalem. So a Jew that was coming for Pentecost to worship, he'd go to the pool and he'd you know, have a ceremonial cleansing and then he would go to rightly worship his God at Pentecost. Well, those early believers spread out to these ponds and, and these little pools and while they, after they were saved, they were publicly baptized. Now think about that. You'll have a snarling Jew next to you here that hates the Messiah, and you're a body of believers over here and a pastor dunking you in, and you're proclaiming, I've left the Jewish nation, I've left that false religion, I proclaim Christ as Lord in front of everybody. It was public, it was known, it was acknowledged. And why that's so important is because false churches are oftentimes trying to stir up baptisms by emotion, right? Not by conviction. In fact, I, I read some time back, you may have heard of it, there's a church in North Carolina with a so-called pastor who has a whole document written about spontaneous baptisms. Have you ever read about this? So this pastor actually has a document written on his website for his leadership team, and what he does is on a day when they've decided to have spontaneous baptisms, they go up and they put people in the church that are part of the spontaneous baptism team all the way through the, spread out through the congregation of, I don't know, I don't know how many people, Stephen Furtick's ministry, whatever they are, 20,000, I don't know. They're spread out, and he starts to preach, 
And the more emotional he gets, they have people that are from the church stand up and walk down the aisles to try and stir the emotions of the other people there to get them to respond so they can have a baptism. Now, you'd think that they would not market that, but there's actually a document written that instructs people how to do it. I mean, you imagine people being so deceived in a church that they actually think that's a good thing? So it's crucial we understand that baptism is not a response of emotion, that someone cranked you up. It's a response of conviction of your sin and the desire to go public with the fact that Jesus is now your Lord. That marked out the early church. Baptism in light of conviction of sin and the desire to make Christ known. That marked out believers. In fact, if you were a believer in the New Testament church and you said, I'm a Christian, you haven't been baptized, they'd say, why not? Don't you want to make it publicly known who you stand with now? Who your loyalties to? This is what marked them out that they had even come to Christ. So baptism was crucial. Let's uh, move on here. I just want to get to some of these other points because we've already covered that in the past few weeks. Not only is public baptism a mark of a church that's been planted by God, but this next one is really encouraging. A true church, one planted by God, is not selfish. It's not selfish. They shared resources. That's your point. They shared resources. Notice verses 44 and 45. And all those who had believed, true believers, were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Now, how many of you have heard someone go to that passage and say, why can't we be like the early church? Look at this. It was communal living. It was socialism. They just sold all their stuff and came together. Woo, this is awesome. Get the rich guys in here. Get them to sell their stuff. Come on. Have you guys heard that? I've heard people say that. Yeah. Hey, why can't we be like Acts 2? Where everyone just sells everything and we just love each other and share all our resources. Well, when people say that to me, I want to say, because that's not what they did in Acts 2. They were, they were identifying needs and then meeting them. There's some important qualifiers by Luke here that you're going to notice in the text that will help you next time you hear that. And it's so encouraging. The early church did not have a, a public social community pool. Notice a couple comments here. Notice verse 44. They had all things in common. That's fellowship language. They had common commitments. They wanted to serve one another. It's not ultimately implying their property there. It's implying a a one-hearted conviction to meet one another's needs. And then Luke modifies it. Notice, he modifies it with two activities that took place with their their community, their their one-mindedness, their all things in common. When, When you're in a passage of Scripture and you think, what's this mean? Just read the next verse. And you'll find out what it means. What does it mean to have all things in common? Well, here's what they did. They began selling their property. That's one activity. And their possessions. And then they began sharing. So they were selling and sharing. They were identifying needs and then sharing them. And you may think, well, couldn't that be speaking that everyone just did that? They came to the community pool and everybody sold all their stuff and it was just holistic? No, because Luke gives another modifier. The selling... And the sharing and the meeting of needs was not for everyone at all times. Notice, it was for anyone who had a need. It was need-based. They were identifying needs and then meeting them. And remember this. This is going to encourage some of you. 
The first church, the church's birthday, born by Christ, was full of transplants. Remember, they all came for Pentecost from all around. You probably had 200,000 people in Jerusalem, and then you had 2 million or so Jews that would come upon Jerusalem. Right? And we studied before that they came from all over the globe, all the way up into Greece, to travel down for Pentecost, which was 50 days after Passover. This first church would have had a bunch of people that heard the gospel, heard Peter preach, soul-penetrating conviction. Think about this. They responded in faith and repentance, and they're from some island in Greece where there's no church. (laughs) And the dad's getting with his family and saying, okay, we got a choice. We either go back to our home country and start sharing the gospel and pray that God brings a pastor to us and we let these apostles know we need him to send someone here or we move. And many of them would have moved so they would have had no property. They would have had no possessions. They would have maybe went back to get the little bit that they had and they were going to try and set up shop in Jerusalem. Now guys, think about in this room. So many of you have moved for the sake of the church. You're just like the first church, making sacrifices on a variety of fronts so that your soul could be cared for. So what do you do when you're at a church where people are coming and they have needs and you've got people with more resources, like we'll see in Acts 4, you've got some wealthy guys looking out saying, "Uh uh-oh, there's some people that have lots of needs. I've got extra pieces of property. Let me sell that property. I'll make sacrifices and let me go ahead and give that to some of the people that have needs. This is the heart of the church. This is why we give to the church. By Acts 4, they're just telling the apostles, we trust you guys. We're going to give. You guys know how to disseminate funds wisely. We're going to give the extra that we have and you guys meet needs. You also had a society with tons and tons of poor people. True believers born again that were impoverished. So the believers that had more, oh, there's a need. How do I meet it? Do I have something extra I could sell where I could give to that person to help them with a meal, with housing? And you could also imply that Some of these people that had more property were probably selling their property at a good rate to the people that were transplanting. So what you have here is not not socialism. You have a loving, sacrificial church that identifies needs and then makes personal sacrifices to meet them. Now I bet you if we went through this room, it'd take us six hours. But every one of you that's a member of our church here could say, I know a time when someone made a personal sacrifice to meet a need for me. I know when they helped me get a job or they put me up in their apartment or they helped me get a house or they gave me this or they gave me that. Why? Because when Christ saves people, they have everything in common in the sense that they have the common desire to serve one another like Christ has served them. So they give, so they sacrifice, so they serve. They were an unselfish church. You know what? Churches are selfish, materialistic churches. Churches where people are obsessing over the temporal at the the sake of the eternal. A healthy church, a vibrant church, it has wealthy people, it has poor people, it has all kinds of different kinds of people and everyone in between. But that church is committed to saying, Christ has saved me, we have all things in common. If I see a need and I can make a sacrifice, I want to meet it. That's the mark of a church that's been planted by God. If you have a bunch of selfish people who don't have that heart, you should wonder if they know God. Right? What's 1 John 3 say? If I see my brother in need... That's the church. That's brother. That's believer. And I close my heart of compassion against them. How does the love of God dwell in your heart? It puts into question whether you're a Christian if you're not willing to make sacrifices to serve others. A healthy church is full of believers that want to sacrifice to serve one another. I love that. It doesn't mean that they ignore 2 Thessalonians 3. If you don't work, you don't eat. 
They were holding people to the standard. If they could work, they wanted them to work. But they were identifying needs and trying to meet them. That's the second mark today, our seventh mark of a church planted by God. Now this next point, I'm going to spend some more time on it. We're going to camp here for a bit on our next point. Our next mark is this. A church that's been planted by God, they feared God. Let me just ask you that. Why is that a crucial component of a church that's been planted by God? I want to I show you this, and then I want you to think about it. Notice what Luke says in verse 43. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe. Let me give you a better translation of that. And fear came upon every soul. Let me say that again. A true church, one planted by God, the first church, fear. It's the word for phobia, phobos. You know, you're phobic of something. You're fearful. It means to have literally be terrified, flee from danger, panic, cause flight, a sense of awe, reverence, alarm, that which causes anxiety, a reverential response to someone or something. Beloved, why would Luke include in the first church the description about them that they, every soul, feared. Why? Why would that be crucial to identify a church? Come on. Tell me. Come on, class. Proverbs 1.7. Wisdom finds its, finds its growth out of the fear of God. Yep. I want to say in the opposite. What happens if a church doesn't fear God? Fear of, without a fear of God, you will compromise. So you think about churches that are full of compromise. They're just churches that do not fear God, right? This is a crucial, crucial point here. This was a church that feared God. What do you think it looks like? How would you identify and know that a church fears God? What do you think? Just anybody. Blurt it out. Wes, how they treat the scripture. Amen. Yep. You walk into a church on a Sunday, you leave here and you go visit somewhere, and the guy's flippant with the word of God. He plays fast and loose with passages of scripture. You can know he lacks a fear of God. Because if you fear God, you fear tampering with his word. You would never want to put your fingerprints on his message. Yep. What else? Love? Yeah. Yeah, what drives you to love one another is you don't want to dishonor the Lord. He calls you to love the brethren. Yep. Yes. Obedience. It's a holy church. A church committed to sanctification. You know, you can do a lot of things when you survey a church. When people ask me they're going to go check out a church and they're looking at a church and they'll say, I'm looking for gospel preaching. I'm looking for expository preaching. I'm looking for uh, the doctrinal statement that has, that has strong doctrine. I'm looking for vibrant body life. You better also make sure that church is serious about sanctification. Because a church that's not serious about sanctification, as I'm about to demonstrate to you, does not fear God. Let's talk about this a little bit more. Fear was upon every soul. Why? Because they knew their God was holy. And they knew He wanted holiness. And they knew He wanted a holy church. And they knew He wanted a pure church. Knowing that their God and what he, knowing their God and what He wanted from them made them fear Him. That would mean they were careful about church life, right? We talk a lot in here about how people are so flippant about how the church should function. They wouldn't have wanted to tamper with anything that would have impacted what Christ did when He birthed the first church in Acts two. 
They also would have never wanted to play fast and loose with the Scriptures, as Wes said, or about sin. But here's a question you may have. Doesn't fearing something make me want to run from it? Right? Usually we think, I fear something, there's a grizzly bear, I don't move towards it. There's a cliff, I don't leap. There's fears that make me think, if I fear something, I should want to run from it. So why does a fear of God lead to a devotion in this first church? Why do they want to run towards God the more they fear Him? Well, I think our own John Anderson has probably one of the best quotes on this. Here's what he says. Why does the fear of God drive someone to Him, but the fear of anything else drives them away from the very thing they're afraid of? Listen to what he says here. Because the God-wrought fear of God is a reverential awe, which fears His judgment, fears offending Him, fears the thought of ever being His enemy, because it longs to be on good terms with Him. Now listen to this next line. This separates the issue. And if you're in here today and you're wondering if you fear God or not, and where your heart's at, this will be penetrating. The wicked might fear punishment as well as they should. But without a love of God, they only fear the consequences of their sin, not God Himself. There's a big difference from fearing the consequences and fearing God Himself. Matthew 10, 28. Do not fear Him who can kill the body, but fear Him who can kill both body and soul in hell. He told that to His disciples. Guys, you fear Me not because I'm going to judge you, because I have the capacity to judge you. John finishes with this. I love this. Just listen. This will comfort your heart, believer. Listen to this. I'm going to read that last line again. But without the love of God, they only fear the consequences of their sin, not God Himself, and therefore they flee from Him. They want nothing to do with Him. However, the godly have always cried out for increased fear of God in order that they might bring greater honor to Him, offer greater obedience to Him, and have more submission to Him, and serve Him with every fiber of their life. End quote. That's right. A true believer fears God and it makes them move towards Him. That is a phenomenal thing that God creates in the heart of a believer. And you know why that's crucial? It leads to this next point. A healthy church exercises loving church discipline. A true church that has a reverential fear of God and takes sin seriously will remove people from that church that are impure or are tampering with true doctrine. In fact, turn to Acts 5. You have your first church discipline just a couple, couple pages later. Watch this. If you go to a church or you go somewhere and they don't have a process by which they go about lovingly confronting people and removing immoral people or teaching false doctrine, it's a false church. True churches love Christ and its purity so much that if people are immoral or are tampering with sound doctrine, they want to remove them from it because Christ's bride is supposed to be pure. In fact, the early church, listen, beloved, the early church had such a fear of God on this front. Listen to me on this. This is crucial. Unbelievers were afraid to attend. Acts 5. But a man named Ananias. This is is that coming together to give the apostles resources to use how they want. With his wife, Sapphira, sold a piece of property. And they kept back some of the price for himself. With his wife's full knowledge and bringing a portion of it, he laid at the apostles' feet. It wasn't wrong that he kept a portion back. The problem was he lied. 
He proved himself to be a liar. Watch how severely God deals with impurity in the first church. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and kept back some of the price of the land while it remained unsold? Did he not... Did it... Did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You, now, now watch this. You have not lied to men, but to God. Stop. When a person brings impurity, sensuality, lying, immorality, false doctrine, Peter says, you're not messing with the people. You've just tampered with God Himself because this is His church. Paul says the same thing in Acts 9, right? Jesus, or Jesus said the same thing to Paul. Jesus up in heaven looks down at Paul. He's on his way to go kill Christians, right? Paul's on his way to go execute Christians. He's the Hitler of that day against Christians. Jesus visits him and doesn't say, why are you persecuting Christians, does he? He says, why are you persecuting me? How you treat the church is how you treat Christ. God takes it very seriously. So Peter says, look at the end of verse 4. You have not lied to men, but to God. And as he heard these words, Ananias fell down and breathed his last. And notice, here's our word. Everybody ready? And great fear came over all who heard it. A true church is so holy and treats sin so severely and so aggressively that people that don't want to be serious about sanctification, they don't want to be serious about holiness, they want to play games with their sin, they're concerned about staying there because of how serious that church is about sin. Man, why are so many churches compromising on this front? I talked to someone recently and they were telling me about uh, the, the old church they were at and they were, t- they were in immorality and they had people excusing their immorality and pushing them into immorality and covering it up for the, for the sake of peace. That's not a church, guys. A church treats sin the way Christ wants us to treat sin, with love and compassion and grace and there's a process. But here you have God showing... He's making an example. This first church in Jerusalem, you bring impurity into the church and lie and deception, God will remove you from the church. Notice verse 5, And he heard these words, Ananias fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came over all who heard it. Now watch this. The young men got up and covered him. Could you imagine being those young men? Whoa. Tony, what? If you had some leaky areas in your life that week, you'd have been getting after it. I'm telling you. Think about that. You wouldn't be one of playing with temptation that week in your private life if you just carried a dead guy away for his impurity. The young man got up and covered him, carried him out, they buried him. Now when there elapsed an interval of about three hours, his wife came, not knowing what happened. And Peter said to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for such and such as a price. And she asked, Yes, that was the price. She lied too. Then Peter said to her, Why is it that you have agreed together to put the Spirit of the Lord to the test? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband at the door will carry you out as well. And immediately she fell at his feet and breathed her last, and the young man came and found her dead. And they carried her out and buried her. And watch what happened to the church. Here's our word again. And great fear came over the whole church and over all who heard these things. And what did that result in? At the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were taking place among the people and they were in all accord in Solomon's portico. But listen to this. But none of the rest, none of the people who heard about holiness and purity that wanted Christ, look at this, none of them dared to associate with them. (laughs) 
However, they held them in high esteem. That church that you're a part of, that whole thing, that sounds great for you. I don't believe it. I don't want any part of it. If Christ takes sin that seriously, and that's what happens, if I bring my impurity into that, I'm out. And then, look at this. 13, unbelievers didn't dare to associate, but they held it in high esteem. Verse 14, but the believers in the Lord and the multitudes of men and women were constantly added to their number. Those who God brought soul-penetrating conviction by the fear of God, He started saving them in bundles. So you had two responses. It's magnetic, right? Some people hear about the holiness of a true church, the purity of a true church, the call for personal holiness, the call what the Scriptures say, not in perfection, but a direction. God makes some say, I don't want to be a part of that. He makes others say, wow, I'm terrified of being judged for that. Repent of their sins, they come to Christ, they get saved. A true church that's serious about sin exercises church discipline to protect the church, but it also is so serious about it that you ought to see a magnetic response. If a church can preach in such a way that everybody wraps their arms around and accepts it, it's not a church. That's like saying that Jesus was popular with everybody. What happened when Jesus preached, beloved? Some got angry and tried to kill him. Some softened and were saved. Listen, you've got to guard your heart in this. You come here to Grace Emmanuel. You go from here. We have serious preaching. You go to discipleship and Bible studies and stuff. And you go over there. And Jerry's bringing it from the pulpit. And you've got friends that want to come. And they come here and they're like, Oh man, every time I come to your church, it's so convicting. It's so hard. Why can't they just be more encouraging? And you're thinking, I was so encouraged. I learned about some sin, how to grow. I saw Christ as the answer. I was so refreshed. I sang songs. I got a lot to work on this week. What a privilege. And they're going, man, how do you like it there? They just beat you up every week. What's happening? The fear of God and the true preaching on sin is drawing the dividing line where sanctification needs to draw it. One time I um, was listening to Dr. MacArthur give a Q&A years ago at a, a video piped in thing. And, and um, I sent up a question um, through the little paper thing, and then Steve Lawson read it to him. It was an anonymous question. But I said, it was basically, Dr. MacArthur, could you describe what the impact is on if people stop preaching sanctification? You know, because there's a lot of churches that like to talk all about the glorious riches of God's grace in the gospel, but not the obligations that come if you respond to the gospel. Everyone likes to hear, I get, get out of hell free card, Jesus is wonderful, but what about when Jesus calls me to live pure this week? So I sent that question up to Dr. MacArthur and he said, I'll tell you something. You want to see a polarizing ministry? You want to see a polarized church? You can preach the gospel. That has some penetrating effect. You preach the doctrine of sanctification and you will see a divide of who's really Christ and who's not. That's what happened in this church. They feared God so much that they took His word so seriously that even if their friends went, even if other people didn't want to be a part of it, even if the culture turned against them, they wanted to honor the Lord. Listen, Rejoice, beloved. You're at a church that preaches sanctification. That's such a mercy. And we fear God. And that's the only reason we do what we do. Because if we feared you, man, I would be softening these sermons all over the place if I knew you weren't going to like me. And i got fear of man like the next guy. But a true church works through that in their heart and true pastors and says, I love souls too much, but I love God more than I even love the souls. And I want you to know Him. That's a true church. If you want to write down some passages... That I don't have time to go to today to go study this for yourself on church discipline and what God does with impurity in the church or false doctrine. Matthew f- uh, 18, 15 to 20. 
1 Corinthians 5, 1-12, Titus 3.10, Romans 16.17, and Titus 1. A true church fears God. You know, I was just going to tell you a couple more narratives of this that have, that have really hit home with me. I was talking to a friend sometime back just about the church and the, the seriousness about sin and got into more discussions about sin. So I started this ongoing study of thinking about the fear of God and I just want you to listen to it. I came upon Psalm 36.1. Just listen to it. Sin preaches a, a sermon here. Listen to it. Transgression speaks to the ungodly within his heart. And what does that transgression do when it takes root? Here's what it does. Listen to it. There is no fear of God before their eyes. A person that does not fear God does not know God. Because sin preaches them the sermon, don't fear God. Well, a church that doesn't fear God isn't a church planted by God. So when you go to a place, if you leave here and you go across the globe for another job or whatever it is, you make sure that church is serious about sanctification and sin and dealing with it and lovingly, winsomely, caringly, with the compassion of Christ, but never tolerating sin. And if you think that's too harsh, go read Revelation 2 and 3. What did Jesus do to the churches that were tolerant of immorality and false doctrine? He removed their lampstand. They ceased to be a church. A true church has a reverent fear of God. One more comment there. If you look back in Acts 2, flip over. There was another clause I skipped over. I'm going to visit later on. Just want you to notice it. Don't think I'm ignoring it. But right there in that same sentence about the fear of God, I want you to notice that it makes a comment about the apostles. That the apostles were doing many wonders and having many signs in verse 43 taking place. I'm going to revisit that later and do a whole sermon on the temporary usage of the gifts and their function, but here's the short version. Just like Jesus, His miracles and His wonders that He did were for the purpose to confirm that His teaching was authoritative and people should trust in it. Their function was to point people to the message. I'll revisit that in some coming weeks. But let's finish out our outline here. True church, one planted by God, one God's put His fingerprints on. Do you know what I love about this next line? Is it wasn't only a church that feared God and walked around and said, Oh, I fear God. This is so, you know, this is so terrible. We walk around all melancholy all the time. No. A church that fears God, a true church, also has a warm spirit. A warm spirit. Look at the text, Acts 2.46. Day by day, continue with one mind in the temple. Temple there was Solomon's portico. They'd meet on the north, probably the east side of it for their big gatherings for Sunday church. And breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together. Look at this. With gladness and sincerity of heart. You know what characterized these believers, those two words? Gladness is the word for joy, rejoicing, winsomeness, kindness, receptive, embracing, easy to get along with, naturally cheerful, inviting and engaging, and sincerity of heart is the word for genuine, not high-minded, not thinking they're better than other people. And how did that take place for them? Notice 46 again. That joyfulness, that receptivity, that orientation towards one another, that love, day by day, all the time, house to house, meals together, they were immersed in one another's lives. Does that mean without sin? Of course not. We just saw how they treat sin. Don't you love that when God's working in a true church, you see all of His attributes? (laughs) And of course it's a joyful people if you fear God. Why? What do you have to be grateful for? I'm not being judged for my sin. I have peace with God. I have a clean conscience. 
I get to sing to Christ today and mean it because my heart is pure and I know He's saved me. I've got a body. He not only saved me, but He gave me a great church and people love me in spite of myself and I sin against people and they forgive me. And Wow! Blessing upon blessing. They were a joyful, thankful, grateful, warm church. Notice, it even showed up in praising. Notice, verse 47. They were praising God. They were thankful. Prayer meetings, fellowship, they expressed regularly how grateful they were to God. Let me try and tie something together here for you so you don't have a, so you don't have a false dichotomy in your mind. How can we have this ministry that's so serious about doctrine and sin and personal holiness and also have this place that's joyful and warm and receptive and kind and embracing and loving and encouraging? When my wife and I came here 10 years ago, immediately we felt like we were just swallowed up. Don't, haven't you all felt that? She's thinking, man, the love, the care, the concern. In fact, Brianna and, and, and Ryan were two of the first people that adopted Bethany and I and took us in, picked us up from the airport when we moved here as a married couple. And Autumn was about this big. Remember that? And you were driving about 40 on the right lane because you were so terrified that something could happen to Autumn. I'm like, let's pick up the base. I remember that. How do, we, how do we merge those? Can I just help you with that really quick? I'm going to do it by illustration. I talked to a young man recently, and he said to me, Darren, when I first came to Grace Emanuel, I was struggling. I said, with what? He said, I wrote it down. He said, when I first came here, I was trying to reconcile how a church could be so serious about sin with such strong preaching and yet so warm and kind. Usually it's like, serious about sin, us four, no more, frozen, chosen, get out. You know, we're the real people of God. Or it's like, sloppy, warm, Nordstrom, fake, cheesy kindness. And I told him what I always tell people because I've heard that same thing a hundred times. It's just a great quote by Dr. MacArthur. And he says this, hard truth makes soft people. You go to a church that has fake, hypocritical, Nordstrom, I greet you at the door, but I'm really a phony and a fake and I'm judging you and I have no real love for you. It's probably full of a pulpit that's soft and anemic and weak and mealy-mouthed. You go to a church that has hard preaching and serious about sanctification and they preach the truth in love, they care for people, you're going to find a whole bunch of soft people. Why? Because when you see your sin, doesn't it humble you? What softens you more than having soul-penetrating conviction as a believer? Oh, I'm such a wretch. Man, I was so selfish. And And then you want to serve and love. You want to care and you see what Christ has done for you and you want to serve others. This is the heart of a true church. I had a contrasting conversation that I wrote down of another friend who said to me this. He, I, I discipled him for about a year and a half and then he left our church upset. And he came back and said, have more and more meeting with me. What's going on? Why are you leaving? And he said, Darren, he said, I love the people here. It's amazing and it's warm and they're kind and everybody loves me. But I cannot take the doctrine or the teaching. He said, so I can't stay here anymore. It's just, I can't do it. And I just smiled and told him, I said, friend, the reason that we have warm and loving people is because of the doctrine and the teaching. You can't have both. And you can't have one without the other. He sadly left. Sad. So beloved, how do you merge those? A true church represents both. Loving, warm, genuine care for one another, which is a result of strong, faithful preaching on the doctrine of sin and sanctification and the fear of God. When your heart starts to chafe against that, when you're sitting under lots of heavy sermons and sanctification, I know you ladies are all upset with me for being in Proverbs 31 for 17 weeks. 
Listen to me. Thank the Lord for penetrating conviction which softens you. Because that's what makes you warm and loving to your friends and kind and gracious and Christ-like. Let's finish this out here. Tenth mark. They have effective evangelism. Effective evangelism. Notice, this is fascinating here. Notice what it says. Verse 47. Praising God and having favor with all the people. Stop there. Don't you find that a peculiar line? Having favor with all the people? It's a bizarre line. In fact, when I first read it, I thought, that translation seems interesting to me. And I, so I looked up all the different people that have translated it. And it kind of sounded to my ears like this. Maybe you. But one translation translates it like this. Contemporary English version. I hope you none of you have this Bible. But <laughs> here's what it says. While praising God, everyone liked them. And day to day, Lord to Lord, uh, day to day, it added to their number those who were being saved. It's talking about unbelievers and their perspective on the church. Well, how could you be a faithful church what we just talked about and have everybody like you? I, th- I just think that's kind of a poor translation. Let me give you a better Greek wooden translation, okay? Give you a stronger translation. And it's a little bit frustrating how many translations. It, I get, let me say this. I get the sense of it. They're trying to pull in the idea that the church is attractive when it's faithful to people that God's drawing. But let me, let me give you a little stronger translation. It's the word, the word there that you're looking at for favor is the word charis, for grace. Here's how you could translate it. These believers, listen, listen to this. Let me, let me say something. Let me run up to it. Who were devoted to sound doctrine, devoted to the church, devoted to fellowship, had repented of their sins, were committed to prayer, were serving the body of Christ, devoted their life to the church, were faithful to baptism, were faithful to repentance. This, this vibrant body when they spread out from being equipped and they scattered, they had goodwill or charity or kindness or showed forgiveness towards all people. They had a godly testimony. Literally, the word is grace there, as I said, for kindness, and then the prepositions toward. So it's, it, it was a grace and a kindness towards unbelievers. Now think about that. That's saying that this church was so healthy, these believers were so well equipped, that after they gathered, when they scattered, they were nice to people. (laughs) They were a good testimony. When they'd go to the grocery store, they'd show off the love of Christ by kindness and sincerity. Fast forward today, when they got on the phone with the Comcast guy and they really didn't like him, (laughs) they weren't unkind. Seriously, think about this. I I was thinking, I think sometimes we go, ooh, I'm worried about my testimony when the person I'm evangelizing. But when I'm on the phone with Verizon, I'm going to light them up. (laughs) Seriously, these believers were saved. It doesn't say they started an evangelical campaign. They didn't go door to door. You know what they did? They went out in the community with holy lives, telling people when they went from door to door and house to house to meet with each other, and people said, what are you doing? Oh, I'm going to meet with believers in the church. They were praising God, the text says. Oh, why are you doing that? Oh, I love Christ. Have you heard about the Messiah? He saved me. No, no, tell me more about it. Now imagine that conversation after you're just rude to them when you bought a piece of bread from them. The market. Do you understand that their evangelism was attractive because their lives were holy and they were kind. They were nice. They were forgiving. They were gracious. Can I ask you something? We're just finishing our time. Do you think that you are 
only working on having this type of kindness and grace and compassion when you think you have an opportunity for evangelism? Or are you doing it all the time, all of your life? You don't know who you talk to, where they're going to see you somewhere else. When I'm driving down Indian Town and I'm thinking, I want to zip in front of this guy, I'm thinking, what if they're pulling into the church? That's not a good move. What if they're new to the church? I'm serious. This church's evangelism was because their lives were attractive. Can you imagine being rotten and nasty and rude to your coworker, having a bad attitude, shooting them rough emails, being unkind and going, hey, let me tell you about how to have power over your sin and have a joyful life. Do you see the problem? This church's evangelism was their testimony to the lost world. Everywhere they went, from the marketplace to the temple when there were Jews that were unsaved there to their workplace. Beloved, everywhere you go, you're a testimony. How do you live? Do people say, show me your Christ? Titus 2.10, we make the doctrine beautiful by our lives. Attractive. Attractive at all? Of course not. People that hate the gospel are going to hate you eventually. But to those, notice. Notice what it says. To those Look at it close. Praising God and having favor with all people and the Lord. Who was adding? The Lord, not them. To their number. Who was adding it? The Lord. How was He adding it? Their godly lives and their godly testimony. Did that mean they shared the gospel? Of course. But how do you get in a good gospel conversation if your life's rotten? Nobody wants to hear about your Jesus. No. Godly people leave here and they scatter. And this first church went across their community and their sphere of influence and they were forgiving grace. They were kind. Grace. They were caring. They were loving. They were tender. They were courageous and bold. That's gracious. But they weren't rotten. I mean, sometimes I just wonder why the world looks at Christians, true believers even, and says, man, if you're what Jesus is about, I don't really want that. You're not very nice to me. I don't mean if you preach the truth then they say you're not nice. I mean you're just generally unkind. This church, they exploded across their sphere of influence and showed off Christ by acting like Christ. He's the perfect example. You want to know how to do this? Read the Gospels. Perfect example. Our time's gone. Sometime I'll tell you the story about the open-air evangelist that I confronted about this for another day. It's in my notes. We'll get to it later. Ten marks of a church planted by God. We've seen it. It's been thrilling. Next week, I want to do a, a message maybe on the one another's and talk about this a little bit, a little bit more, think about the one another's. But beloved, last thing to you is this. You're here. You have non-creative pastors and elders. Praise the Lord. We're, we have no innovation. And if you ever leave here, don't ever evaluate a church by numbers, by what people say about it. Go there and make sure it lines up with an Acts 2 church. And if it doesn't, then be cautious if God would want you to attend a place like that. Amen? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank You for today. Thank You so much for Your Word. We're so excited to go over and hear from Pastor Matt more truth. We can never get enough. We need doctrine. We need hard truth, Lord. We know our flesh is craving the soft version, but we need it hard. We need it straight. It softens us. It humbles us. And Jesus Christ, You saved us. You demonstrated to your disciples what it looked like to love and you never pulled any punches and yet you sacrificed for them unto death. That is our life. Bless our mourning. Bless our fellowship. Bless our body life. Thank you for this church. That we get to be a part of a healthy church is beyond what we deserve. We're so grateful, Lord. And help this room not forget that they will be the next generation 
and that they need to think seriously about how to pick up the mantle and carry it on for generations to come. In your name, amen. You guys are dismissed.